right, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. I'm here today with Adam Davidson, who is a man of many hats. Uh, most of you probably have a sense of who Adam is already, but in case you don't, he was a founder of NPR's Planet Money, wrote an economics column for New York Times Magazine, wrote a great book called The Passion Economy, which we're going to talk about today. He covered Trump's business dealings for The New Yorker, founded a podcast company called Three Uncanny Four. Um, and although it questions your judgment, you're a friend of my producer, Hugo Lindgren. So, uh, Adam, welcome and thanks for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here, but do question my own judgment about Hugo. Agreed. Yeah, I think we, we, we can have a separate conversation about that off the air. Offline, yes. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, want to talk about, I think, as most people would, would to talk to you want to talk about, which is money. And, you know, it, it seems like, there's been all of these kind of shifts maybe driven by the, just the need to respond to COVID in the past 12 to 14 months or so that seem to trigger different conclusions than ones we had been taught for, for a very long time. So like, for example, um, in the late nineties and kind of the Clinton Rubin days, and then even through some of Bush, um, the notion was, deficits are really harmful and we've got to get them under control. And now we'll have spent, you know, with this infrastructure bill, you know, five to $10 trillion total on, on both stimulus and, and COVID response. And people seem to be saying, or some people that, yeah, maybe deficits actually just don't matter after all. Um, what changed and, and who's right? Well, um, if I get too technical, <laughs> stop me and we can go backwards. But I, I think that Certainly among economists, there's a growing view that we that the what's the natural rate of in, of interest, the discount rate is much lower than we thought. So, you know, if if you think of whether, you know, the Fed funds rate or, um, you know, there, there are in any society, there are people who want to save money they have more money than they need and they want to save it. There are people who want to spend money and they want to spend more than they have. And the way you allocate the money, you take the money from the savers and give it to the spenders um, is through interest rates. And the general view was that there was a sort of normal rate that was maybe three-ish percent. Um, that that was, you know, that it, it, it's actually a number that emerges from an entire society. You know, if you took all of the people in America, each one would have a different view about how risky the future is. They'd have a different view about how much they want to save versus how much they want to spend. But if you take all the people, all the businesses, average them out, you, you, the thought used to be you get to around 3%. And I think the view now is that's just too high. It, it's actually a much lower number than that, which tells us that people don't are, are they don't see holding money as um, as as costly as as they used to, and um, and so I think there's a general view that we need to push people and businesses to put more money at risk to spend more. Um, than the thought was, you know, before the financial crisis, say. And that could be a result of the financial crisis and the kind of crazy period of intense Federal Reserve and other central bank activity, zero interest rates. But it also could be a natural outgrowth of changing demographics that, 
um, you know, if you think of America a generation earlier when the baby boomers were earning a lot, spending a lot, um, and, and, and there weren't as many old people, um, you, you, you could see where you, you didn't need to push people as hard. So the end result of that is that there is a growing, I would say, approaching consensus that inflation should be higher. If the Fed now has a target inflation rate of 2%, the view is maybe that should be 4%, which is a you know a dramatic, that's 100% more. Yeah. Um, you really, the average person doesn't notice 2% inflation, but they do start noticing 4%. When you are at zero interest rates or zero, you know, 25 basis points, and you want more inflation, you can't lower the interest rate. So you, you've lost the core monetary policy tool. So what you have to do is you have to spend. And then if you, and you have to spend a lot. Now there's a debate about how much, and a lot of economists would say the Biden COVID stimulus is too high, but but it has to be, you know, certainly 800 billion, a trillion, maybe not 1.9 trillion, because um, that's the only tool you have left in the quiver, if that makes sense. Yeah, so w when, when we, issue all this debt, um, we at least have to pay kind of the, the interest on the Treasury bills every year. Um, but, you know, in theory, it seems like maybe the debt never really comes due because every year you can just kind of push it out and, and increase your spending as long as there's a market for people who want to buy, uh, buy the debt. Um, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of endless and infinite. Um, it, and it seems like some economists like Paul Krugman are, are basically trying to, as I read it, encourage that view of, hey, we can spend as much as we want on every kind of social issue we care about because we're no, we'll never really have to pay this. We're kind of too big to fail. Um, it, it, are they right? So I, I, I think, I mean, I guess my short answer is, to yeah, to some degree they are right. But I mean, I think the, the thing I would add is it's not just Paul Krugman. Like, it's not just kind of famously, you know, dovish American left-wing economists. It's the IMF, it's Olivier Blanchard, it's very serious, like kind of people who who believe in this view that there should be a 4% um, inflation target or 3% at least. And we are in crazy, crazy, crazy times because of that zero interest rate or 25 basis point interest rate. There's just the main tool we have to um, address the kind of present versus future, savings versus spending issue is no longer monetary policy, it's fiscal policy, meaning the government actually spending stuff. So one way to look at it, in my view, in, this isn't good enough is is the household model all right we're the u.s government um we we're like a household if we spend more than we make we eventually have to pay that bill and that's not entirely untrue but it's also not entirely correct because households don't have their own currency households don't have a split between the government and the private sector i mean there's a lot that's lost in the household metaphor and so I think the concern now is 
you know, yes, in an ideal world, you would have debt less than 100% of GDP. But, and there was a time not that long ago when the view was once debt goes above 90% of GDP, it's really scary, weird things start to happen. But they just haven't happened. They haven't happened to us. They haven't happened to Japan. They're not happening in Europe. Like it's the things we were afraid of weren't happening and different things that we used to not be afraid of are happening. So it, it's not so much about like if, if you think of it as the time machine of money that that there are choices you can make today that have a big impact on tomorrow and 10 years from now and um and and you you know one choice is we're going to be in more debt 10 years from now but the other choices impact how big is the economy 10 years from now how rich are people 10 years from now how broadly shared is the growth of the economy 10 years from now how innovative is the economy 10 years from now and i'd say for right now pushing for more economic activity more spending more capital at risk more investment is the right choice even if it means we're in greater debt because we'll have more money so you know sorry to keep sort of going on these monologues but you know if your kid says i want a sports car that might be a bad investment if your kid says i want to go to college so that i i'll go go into serious debt but i'll earn more for the rest of my life that's a good investment and government stimulus can act like a sports car or it can act like college and i'd say right now it, it's more we're more in the college category we're spending more now means the overall economy is bigger it's easier to pay off our debts um so that that i think is the thinking of an increasingly mainstream group of economists so if not every societal problem can be solved by money. And I think quite frankly, often we, we throw lots of money at problems and, and still fail to really make them much better. But some things can be solved uh, by money or at least made better by money. If, if debt as a percentage of GDP turns out to not be the harm that everyone thought, and if the alternative is to be able to lift people out of poverty, make sure they have food, shelter, everything else, um, are the AOCs of the world right? Should we just keep spending and spending uh, and, and take the gamble? Um, I mean, there is an upper limit to spending. And, you know, and some, including some like Democratic kind of left-leaning economists would say we're pretty much there with the, you know, the $1.9 trillion stimulus that it's maybe two or three times bigger than it should be. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, if, if that's not the ceiling, it's pretty close to the ceiling. So, um, so yeah, I don't think you know if the, if it was the three point nine trillion dollars stimulus, I think you'd see a lot more. Maybe even Paul Krugman saying, "Oh, that's too much. That that really, and that's too much for a whole bunch of reasons. It's not just that we'll be in more debt. It's you know we are emerging from the COVID response. We are." you can have an overheating. So if 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 unemployment is low, if people start spending a lot more, so so more people want more stuff, the prices of that stuff goes up because demand has gone up. So the people want higher wages. 
to the extent they can get higher wages, their employers have to raise prices even higher. You know, you do start seeing how there's a, you know, a, an inflationary spiral. And then on top of it, as we saw in 2004, five, six, when you reach a certain level of frenzied economic activity, you have really malinvestment, bad investment. So you're not investing in college, you're investing in, you know, astrology school or some, you know, useless, you know, investment. So, so there is an upper, I don't think the argument is there is no upper limit. At least that's not my argument. I don't think that's a serious argument among economists. I'd say the upper limit is higher than we thought. And, um, and the, uh, uh, but yeah, we're, we're flirting with it now. So, yeah. So, so I think, some of the more, you know, AOC, Bernie Sanders ideas that really just ignore inflationary effects, deficit effects, that, to me, that's too much. I don't think there's a lot of economists who would sign on to those kinds of plans. So let's talk about your book, The Passion Economy, and it, it came out the year before last, and would love for you to give the readers both the operating thesis of the book, and then whether or not that thesis uh, still holds in the same way after a year and change of COVID. Haven't you written, people have written books? The, the only thing I can say is it now holds even more than ever. Um, there you go. Well, that, this is the forum to, to make that case. Yeah, I actually do believe that, but that's also what everyone who wrote a book a year and a half ago said. <laughs> so um, my, my, I mean, my core thesis, and this does come out of work I did with Hugo at the New York Times Magazine, and, and it's not just my thesis. I mean, I think, it's a fairly mainstream view among economists, is that we're going through, I mean, none of this should sound too terribly shocking. We're going through a massive transformational economic change that, you know, I'd say is on the scale of the shift from agriculture to industry. You know, so if you think of, you know, the industrial revolution, you know, maybe starts in the 1700s, but it really gets going in the 1880s. And you see, it changing everything, where people live, how they live, how they form families, how they think about identity, all everything about society is just completely transformed from 1880 to around 1920, unrecognizably transformed, technologically, emotionally, psychologically, religiously, like in every possible way. Yeah. It, it, it's, and, and I would say what we're going through now is on that scale. And, and I think that's because the fundamentals are just very, very different. That for from roughly 1880 to roughly 1980 the core rules were that if someone wanted to become really really rich they had to bring a whole lot of people with them and they had to do it at massive scale so you know you think of henry ford or procter and gamble or you know dupont chemical whichever large corporation you want to think of you know if Henry Ford wanted to get rich, he needed to make hundreds of thousands of auto workers and auto suppliers, maybe millions, at least middle class, because you needed people to physically do a lot of work. And because of computer technology and international trade, we that is not the case, you know. Clubhouse is the latest example of a billion dollar company that had fewer than 10 employees. Um, they don't need to make millions of people rich to become rich. And the core kind of, you know, maybe Facebook had to make a few hundred thousand people rich, but its size is so massive that it's not relative to 
um, to, to what used to be the case. So for a good long while, let's say from the 1970s into the last decade, that was really bad news for a lot of people because um, the core logic of how people did well um, went away. And the 20th century was almost certainly in US history, in global history, the period of the greatest broadly shared increase in prosperity. The average American is, you know, 10 or so times richer in 1980 than the average American in 1880. You know, imagine if 100 years from now, you know, right now, average income is whatever it is, 60 grand. So imagine it was 600 grand in today's terms that the average American is would be considered rich. That is a massive shift in the 20th century. That core engine has broken, and but what eventually happened is those very same disruptors that ended that system, computer technology, global trade, means the average person now can sort of become their own mini Henry Ford. They can create products and services, sell them to folks. Um, the thing is they shouldn't do it most people shouldn't do it at scale, meaning I'm gonna sell Snickers bars to every single person on earth. They should do it intimately by focusing on the people who uniquely value them. And that's because now it's possible to match a producer of something with the consumer of something with a degree of specificity that never existed before. If if Henry Ford wanted to sell cars in San Diego, he basically had to sell cars to everybody between Detroit and San Diego and just flood the market. He couldn't really know that much about what the San Diegans want. But right now, if you created a custom product, you could build a business around 100 people or 1,000 people or 10,000 people, depending on price points and what you're doing, even if they're spread thinly all over the earth. You don't have to kind of flood the zone with everybody. So that's my core thesis. And then the book is sort of a celebration of that idea by focusing on people who figured this out. Yeah. So what, what are some of your fa favorite examples of it? I, I mean, I, I do have a, uh, there's this uh, chocolate bar company, Ocho Candy, that I love. They, they make like basically an elevated Snickers bar, like a really delicious, you know, the Snickers bar, which is delicious, let's be honest. Does it have nougat? Um, it does not have nougat but neither does a Snickers bar. It does oh, not really? have the traditional nougat. It has something they call nougat, but it really is like a firm filling for that's an industrial, for industrial reasons. So if you think of like a really delicious piece of chocolate, it's not gonna be soft on the outside. It's gonna be hard on the outside. And the inside is gonna be really luxurious and creamy. A Snickers bar is the opposite. It's hard inside. And then there's this soft melted layer on the outside. That's for economical reasons. The Mars family, Forest Mars, wanted to have a bar that looked like a lot of chocolate without actually having to pay for a lot of chocolate. So he came up with this industrial process. So this is a case where Ocho Candy has been able to make a lot of money. I mean, it's made the two founders rich by anyone's standards, but not billions. It's made tens of millions. Um, by really focusing on a very, like to Snickers, a fairly tiny part of the market. But the thing I like to point out is this exists everywhere. It, I, I One of the heroes of my book is um, an accountant who just has a very unique way of being an accountant. He charges, I don't know, 30 times the going rate for being an accountant, but that's because he provides maybe a hundred times as much value. Um, he He's able to 
you know, he used to be a regular accountant and he had hundreds of customers. Now he has 30 customers and that, um, may, and he makes way more money. Um, there's a group of Amish farm implement manufacturers I profile. I really love that story. Um, what I started to find is you can find these folks in every sector, every economy. It's just, you know, we hear a lot about the creator economy, TikTok and Instagram influencers. I think that's just one application of it, but it exists in all sorts of B2B industrial businesses. It exists everywhere if you once once you look for it. So are, are the people who you profiled and are doing this, are they exceptional or are they doing something that a lot of people could do, but they just happen to figure it out? That that is my thesis that they they are not exceptional. In fact, I went out of my way. You know, I, I've always had a kind of pet peeve that there's all the you know I find it interesting to read about Steve Jobs or you know whatever you know Jeff Bezos. It's interest. It is interesting, but it's not like I don't know how applicable it is. It's like if you are a once in a generation genius, you can become a billionaire. I don't I don't know that a lot of us can really create the next apple but everyone in my book is a, an everyday person they're not they didn't go to the top schools they didn't grow they weren't born rich and generally they do very well by american standards but this is not if you want to be a billionaire you probably still do need to do something at massive scale maybe i'm not sure that my approach is going to work for billionaires but it definitely there should be a lot more millionaires i believe i think a lot of people in almost any industry can figure this out um and 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 are figuring it out i i i do again liken it to that period 1880 to 1920 like if you think of, say, 1885, some kid is leaving the farm and moving to the city and going to work in a factory, they don't yet have a language for a whole host of things that we now think of as normal. There are not unions yet. There's not a recognized work day. There's not um, even the way relationships are formed. You know, there's panic for years about these women moving to the city away from their families on the farm. They're wearing pants. They're going to dance halls. What what's, young people are choosing who they're going to marry instead of having it happen through a family context. Even the very idea of being a teenager, an adolescent, really comes out in the early 1900s. We didn't even have that concept. And so it just took a long time for formal institutions like unions and minimum wage and mortgages to be formed, but also informal institutions like the idea of that an education will help you and isn't just an obscure thing for like religious preachers. The idea that a, there's something called a career track, that there's something called a large corporation. All these things had to be created. So I, I think we're in the creation phase. We don't yet have the full language. So you're only seeing people more frontier on the frontier of this. My expectation, I have a nine-year-old son. My expectation is by the time he enters the workforce, a lot of this will just be kind of boring and normal. It won't seem so new or so weird or so exciting. Will, will it get there on its own because of just people will do it and the people like you will write about it and that will make it more intuitive or or in order to make this happen, it's kind of thing that should be incorporated into curriculums and the kind of thing where if the government's spending all this money, they ought to be making sure that, that people understand this. So how does it happen at scale? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that period, again, the 1880s and 1920s, and the way it manifests itself very differently in different countries shows that there are things that will happen everywhere that are kind of maybe inevitable. And unless, you know, there's some cataclysmic world war or whatever, um, but then government policy, you know, the way workers organize has a huge impact. So, um, you know, average wages rose everywhere that industrialization went, um, hunger lowered, you, you saw a lot of the same, you know, family formation, all these things are spread everywhere, but it happens in very different place, ways in Germany or France or Japan or Korea. Um, so I don't think it's inevitably good. I don't think it's inevitably clean. Um, and, and, and I do think it will involve power struggles, like real old fashioned power struggles. Um, and, you know, I think you're already seeing, it's weird to call them legacy companies, but folks like Facebook, Google, I think they're, they're a little uneasy about this whole creator economy and this democratic democratization of our economy. So yeah, I, I think it's a fight. I think it's the fight of our of our lives. Um, and and I think government plays a role, but at the end of the day, you know, it's like FDR once said, I think, I don't know if it's apocryphal, like make me do the right thing. Like essentially I'm not going to do the right thing unless the voters make me do it. And I think we we still don't yet have a clear grasp on what the problem is. So you know, I think you're seeing that in some of the more heated extremism among Trump supporters, where it's not economic anxiety in the way it's been portrayed, but there is a feeling that something's lost and we want to go backwards. That's not going to be the solution. The solution is not going backwards. The solution is not racial politics. So to the extent that grows, that's not good. I also am not a socialist, so I don't think that an AOC, Bernie Sanders, like more controlled economy is the solution either. You know, I do think unions can play an important role, but I don't think unions are the solution. This is a very different problem than the problem unions were created to solve. So yeah, I think we need fresh new thinking. And, you know, at the moment, it's hard to think of government as being a place with a lot of fresh new thinking. Yeah. So speaking of Trump, you wrote a lot about his business dealings uh, during his time in office. Um, where does it go from here? Does he ultimately get prosecuted by the Manhattan DA or someone else on it? Or is it the kind of thing that was a, a big story and a, another thing to fight about during his presidency, but it just kind of goes away? Um, I think he's probably going to be prosecuted. Certainly civilly, I think criminally is is a bigger question for me. Um, I mean, we know for a fact that they violated all sorts of laws. I mean, you know, the, the Trump Foundation case alone, the Michael Cohen prosecution, um, and not just my reporting, lots of other people's reporting, there's there's really no question that there's an awful lot of, um, there, there's a lot to look for for prosecutors. Um, you know, we, we in our country do not prosecute white collar crime aggressively, we just don't. And it, it's, it's really, really hard to get criminal convictions. You know, Bernie Madoff stands out as like, you know, first of all, he did it for a long time. And then it was like kind of weird that he went to jail, actually. So I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical that Trump ends up in prison. I, I do think it's not impossible. I think it is very possible. He wins re-election in 2024 with a whole bunch of prosecutions going on. Um, 
but but I think you know the Trump organization for the rest of its existence is going to be tied up in all sorts of litigation, almost certainly. Yeah, I guess that's that's better than nothing. Um, so you're a New Yorker, but but you've been up in Vermont during COVID. Um, are you coming back? And how do you feel about the economy of, of New York City? Does it recover or is it never really the same? So I am not coming back. We have decided to just stay in Vermont. Wow. We really love it. Are we breaking this news on the podcast? I, I don't know if I've publicly said it, but um, but uh, I don't know if it's news, but, um, but I'm excited about it. We love it here. And my kid, he just is in heaven. It's like amazing for a nine-year-old kid to be, a, you know, for the price of a tiny place in Brooklyn, I have 30 acres to run around and, you know, and it's, 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 you know, getting to sled on my own property with my son instead of having to trudge to a crowded hill in Park Slope, in, in Prospect Park is kind of dreamy. And I am coming to New York and, and so I don't think you can hold New York down. I think New York will def is already bounce. I was there last week, is already bouncing back. Um, you know, for me, as somebody who grew up in New York in the 70s, um, I, I'm not crazy about the financialization of the New York economy and kind of the, you know, the, the price pressure of Wall Street that um, diminished the ability of artists and other creative people um, to, to make New York a place of experimentation and, and creative energy. So I... I kind of would love it if Wall Street was less of a force, but I, I think financialization is just, you know, for complicated reasons we don't have to get into, but it's just going to continue to be an increasing part of our economy. It seems that finance is one area where actually physically being in the same place with other finance people has massive economic benefit. So I, I think, you know, it, it probably loses a few points of, you know, the equivalent of city GDP, but but I think five years from now, we'll barely remember COVID from the, the economy in New York. Yeah, let me just quickly make the, the counter, because I, th I think it's it's fashionable, especially among New Yorkers who want to have optimism and they love their city to say, it'll be fine, it'll be bounced back. But without even knowing you personally, but I'm, so I'm going to make some assumptions here, but you were New York City resident where you paid local taxes. You spent money in the local economy. You probably use little to no social services. I'm guessing you weren't receiving food stamps or, or, or any type of public assistance. Um, and you, you know, you're a friend of Hugo, so, so maybe this is questionable, but you probably weren't out there breaking a lot of laws, right? So basically you, your ROI to the city was incredibly high. Um, how many people like you have to leave for the city to feel the loss? Of I mean, you're right. That is true. And, but it, I mean, it's a little bit like the conversation we had earlier about kind of the time machine impact of money that, in my mind, one thing that makes New York different from almost any global city, I mean, maybe Tokyo is a comparison, but New York, New York is a gathering place for so many global industries. You know, it's not just finance. It's not just journalism. You know, it's fashion, it's food, it's um, theater, it's it and it's publishing, it's, um, you know, the insurance industry, real estate, you know, so the pent up demand is so massive, you know, that, you know, if, if it, you know, if it was L.A. or San Francisco or another kind of, you know, the robotics industry in Boston or something where there was a 
massive shift towards an ability to work remotely. Um, and, and there was really one industry that was facing one kind of secular trend, I, I would be more worried. But New York, all of those industries that I mentioned really benefit from people being in the same location at the same time. You know, you, it's hard to imagine a fashion studio or a group of theater performers or a journalistic operation um, or a restaurant not involving like physical proximity. And so, and, and they're not making more Manhattan. Well, I mean, maybe a little bit in lower Manhattan, but not really. So that's why I think it, it's hard for me to think of it as becoming like Youngstown, Ohio or something or whatever, you know, whatever Gary, Indiana, some like hollowed out place. Um, it, it, you know, if New York didn't exist today, we'd have to invent it, you know, that kind of thing. So that that's why I'm bullish. But yes, I mean, I moved here. So many of my friends are like, holy shit, should I move to Vermont? <laughs> that sounds pretty nice. But most of them aren't. Most of them are are sticking around. So last question, you were a consultant on The Big Short, which I think a lot of people think is kind of the best movie ever about business. So other than the one that you did aside, uh, what's the best business movie out there? In a weird way, it's not a movie, but I think Breaking Bad is really great at, at like, there's... All right, no, that's a thing. Explain why. Well, I think it just is a great... There's a lot in there about, you know, how to establish unique value, you know, like what, you know, it's using math, but, you know, what makes value... Um, you know, what makes one product more valuable or less valuable than others. There's a lot in there about kind of the importance of and distortionary impact of finance, like how the financiers impact, you know, the integrity of a product. Um, there's a lot in there about how incentives, shared incentives versus divergent incentives can work in business relationships. Like, like if, if I had, you know, like I could, I, I, I would guess I could teach most of a MBA program through Breaking Bad, um, that there would be episodes that really... That you get a lot of applications for that program. Yeah, I just... Should we do this? Let's, yeah, let's do well, it. It's funny. So I, I, I teach at Columbia Business School, and for they, I maybe stupidly, but let me just do whatever I wanted for the reading list for next semester. And in order to explain... Uh, kind of the politics of disruption, which is my, you know, my, it's supposed to be my specialty. Uh, we're reading What Makes Sammy Run uh, by Bud Schilberg, Augustus by John Williams. Uh, I'll make them read my book. And then watching season three of The Wire. Um, which, oh, yeah. You know, no, The Wire is the other. Yes, right, absolutely. Right, there's no other for Breaking Bad. It's, it's, it's The Wire. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I think we're, we're already on it. But yeah, if, 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 if you get bored with other stuff you're doing or kind of the seeing all the cows just kind of finally gets dull, yeah, shoot me a note and we'll, uh, we'll come up with a Breaking Bad curriculum. Yeah, that was, that's the one that pops into my head. I'll have to think some more. You know, it's funny. I, I find like my whole career is trying to make business and economics accessible to the average person and entertaining and fun. But I mostly consume economics in you know a fairly technical way. I don't find it relaxing or enjoyable because <laughs> I'm either I'm jealous and pissed off that they did a better job than me, or I'm pissed off that they did a worse job, or I'm just thinking through how I would have done it. So I don't 
like run to see movies or TV shows about business or economics. It's, you know, Breaking Bad, it wasn't on my mind. I just wanted to watch Breaking Bad. And then later I was like, holy crap, they really get at all these core issues. And The Wire, of course, of course, of course. I mean, every season of The Wire has lessons, you know. Season five, maybe a little less so, but otherwise to yeah. totally agree. So, all right, so the lessons here are one, uh, if you haven't read it, go out and buy The Passion Economy. That's why Adam joined us. But two, uh, if you if you want to learn about life and you can watch The Wire and Breaking Bad and then ascribe it to any issue you want and you can claim credibly that it was a good use of your time. So, Adam, thank exactly. you so much for joining us. Yeah, this was a joy. Thanks so much.